Hey everyone, I'm Gavin. I'm Ryan. And this is The Sound Project. Okay, so today we are going to talk about reverberation time. Yeah. And it's a little different than what we've talked about on previous podcasts because a lot of it has been more studio based. Mm -hmm. uh, reverberation time is a metric that's used more for larger spaces. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so we do a lot of studio designs with our, our business, but also we work in a lot of performance halls and churches and auditoriums and, and bigger spaces where reverb time is, is a big issue. Mm -hmm. And I uh, wanted to kind of cover that and, and talk about some, some uh, different aspects of that metric and where to apply it and, and all of that fun stuff. Yeah. Um, with reverberation time, uh, the definition of it is simply the time it takes for sound to decay by 60 decibels. And... Uh, um, a lot of times when you're taking a measurement in a room, sometimes you don't have 60 decibels of headroom, and, and uh, you, you, I'll show a little bit about how we get around that. Um, but the, one of the big things to know is that reverberation time is frequency dependent, okay? okay. So uh, you don't have consistent reverb time at all frequencies. Like sometimes the low end uh, decays a lot longer than the high end or, or vice versa even. Sure. And uh, so it's important to look at uh, per frequency what's going on with the reverb time. And there's a lot of different ways that you can measure the reverb time. Uh, you know, one one is an impulse response mm -hmm. uh, where you actually, uh, you know, pop a balloon or do a hand clap. Or I have this thing I do with with uh, my tongue. <laughs> I can go. I didn't want to do it in the microphone, but it's very loud, <laughs> and it's something that uh, excites the room, and then it stops, and then you can count how many seconds it takes for it to decay. And uh, there's also an interrupted method where this is what we use a lot of times in, in uh, um, larger spaces when we do uh, these measurements is that we fill the room with pink noise, yep. and then we cut it off, and the software is able to measure um, the reverb time based off of, of, of the decay. Um, there's also a two-port measurement, which is a Fourier transform. Um, things like the TEF machine, which was very popular for uh, acousticians, would use that method. It's basically, it knows the signal that it's sending out into the room, mm -hmm. and so it can measure what it's picking back up and then uh, post-process that to get reverb time. Sure. So there are a lot of different ways that you can measure it, and there's software programs out there that will do this for you, as long as you have like an omnidirectional measurement microphone and, mm -hmm. and uh, um, you know a good USB preamp coming out of your laptop and, and you can get these these measurements of reverb time. I will say that we don't use it in recording studio designs because it's really a metric that was defined and developed based on uh, the assumption that there was a diffuse sound field where uh, it, you know the, the sound is able to open up and develop these these long wavelengths. Mm -hmm. In small rooms, you just don't get that. Sure. You don't have a diffuse sound field. And so that's why uh, we don't use it as a design criteria for, say, a control room or a mm -hmm. live room or something like that. A lot of times it needs to be above about 1,500 cubic feet for mm -hmm. it to, to really uh, kick in to be something that we look at reverb time. But for these these uh, auditoriums and church spaces, it's it's one of the defining metrics that, that we're always looking at, and uh, making sure that we get that right for the given application. Sure. Uh, the next thing we're going to look at here on the screen, and, and if you're uh, uh, listening to this uh, on audio only, uh, you can check this out on YouTube or Spotify, uh, something that has a video platform, because we're going to show some graphics throughout uh, and kind of explain some of these topics. Uh, but with reverb time, I wanted to show 
how we can still get a reverb time measurement even if we don't have 60 decibels of headroom uh, mm -hmm. to deal with. And so uh, on this graph here, we've got the left uh, side that shows uh, there's a noise floor there at the bottom. Uh, at the bottom of the graph there, right around you know 30 decibels or so, there's a noise floor. And we're able to get our signal up to about 100 decibels in the room, and then it decays, and, and we have 60 decibels of headroom before it gets into the noise floor. But then on the right side, uh, the noise floor is actually more at 60 decibels in that room, and in order to get 60 decibels of headroom, like we'd have to crank it up to 120 decibels. And sometimes that's just not feasible or sure. something that, that we should be doing. Um, so sometimes what we end up doing is just going as loud as we can and then uh, assuming that the reverb is is like a linear decay, mm -hmm. uh, we can extrapolate and figure out what it would have been if we had 60 decibels of, of drop. And so you can kind of extrapolate that out and predict what the reverb time would have been if you can't get the noise floor above uh, or get your signal 60 dB above the noise floor. Mm -hmm. So that's important. Uh, we also look at the application for the reverb time because yeah. What's good for one room, like let's say if it's a room only for speech applications, is not going to be great for, let's say, orchestral music or an organ. Sure. You know, like uh, some of the greatest uh, um, orchestra halls in the world are, have a reverb time around two to two and a half seconds at mid frequencies. Uh, sometimes even up to like 2.8, 2.9, like some of the like Vienna and uh, the Concert Gebouw in Amsterdam and Boston Symphony Hall, like all these have a really long reverb time. But if you try to use it just for speech only, it'd be very hard to understand what someone is speaking in a room mm -hmm. with a two and a half second reverb time. Because a lot of time for speech, it might be more around one second or 1.5 seconds. And, sure. and so uh, there's there's a, a big difference when you, you try to compare those those two reverb times. And that's why it's challenging when we're doing churches where speech is important, mm -hmm. but then they have an organ or they have a choir or something else, um, and unless we're doing some adapt adaptive acoustics where we're changing the room on the fly, um, you have to kind of find a, a common middle ground, like somewhere in between, where mm -hmm. it'll be good for both, maybe not perfect for either. Sure. You know, and and so that's something that we we. Uh, uh, work through all the time with clients. Mm -hmm. And this uh, um, graph that I have sh shown right now is uh, the reverb time for different applications and what would be uh, ideal for mm -hmm. those applications. And uh, the way you read this is the y-axis is reverb time. So it goes from zero up to 2.8 uh, seconds of reverb. And then on the x-axis is the volume of the room, because uh, the volume of the room dictates uh, how long that reverb time should be for a given application. So if we go up to, uh, let's say, 100,000 cubic feet, and we we say that we have a uh, opera house that we're doing, uh, you would take 100,000 cubic feet, tra travel that line up till you hit that opera house line, and then you move your cursor over to the left, and that's going to hit at around like 1.3 seconds or so. Mm -hmm. um, so you can do this for all these different applications. You see House of Worship emphasizing choral music, House of Worship emphasizing organ music, uh, lecture halls. There's all these different applications, and we try to fit that reverb time uh, to that. Now, we can simulate things all the time and, and be able to predict how a room is going to perform before and after acoustical treatment, and usually we pick a target from using charts similar to this. Sure. 
Is there a uh, standard or is this chart kind of the standard for each of those types of rooms? Uh, there's there's a little bit of a standard. I mean, this this is one of many charts like this. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it, people kind of pick and choose which ones they want to go with. They're usually in the same range as far as the sure. reverb time is concerned. One might be a little bit more dead or live, depending on on that person who developed the chart. And, and it's all a bit subjective, sure. you know, because everybody likes a, a different amount of reverb in their room. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but this is just kind of proven over the years of of what people enjoy and how they like to listen to these types of, of music or or speech applications. Sure. Yeah. Uh, the next thing we're going to look at here is uh, how reverb time. I mentioned how it's not frequency dependent, mm-hmm. uh, and so, or I'm sorry, it is it is frequency dependent, and uh, so every time that you have a reverb time, let's say at 500 hertz of 1.5 seconds, mm-hmm. doesn't mean it's going to be 1.5 seconds all the way across, and sure. and so sometimes the low frequencies, depending on how a room is built it might decay longer than the mid frequencies. Like Mm -hmm. we did a a job once for um, uh, Christ Fellowship Church down in Florida Mm -hmm. is a precast concrete building uh, with concrete floors with thin carpet on it and then a steel ceiling. And when we did the model of that room at 125 hertz, the reverb time simulated to be about six and a half seconds. Mm which is insane. I mean, six. imagine filling up the room with that energy and having to wait a full six and a half seconds for it to die out. Like yeah. that is, that's excessive. And, and normally it's not that uh, uh, long of a time, <laughs> but it can get up there, you know? And uh, uh, for that room, we had to do a lot of like kind of bass trapping using barrel diffusers mm-hmm. and then thicker treatments. And we were able to get that down to about 1.5 seconds, but it took a lot to yeah. do that. And so rooms that have concrete that don't budge with low frequencies, uh, and it's just going to reflect all that energy back into the room, mm-hmm. they perform differently than if it was a drywalled room, because drywall does flex and has like a sympathetic vibration that absorbs that energy, and, and uh, drywall can actually absorb low frequencies pretty well. Sure. And so the materials are going to drive a lot of this. But this uh, uh, chart that we have here on the, on the screen is um, what's called like the the base ratio, and uh, for rooms that are uh, for musical applications, especially concert halls, mm-hmm. uh, you want the low frequency reverb time to slope up a little bit uh, and be a little bit longer in the low frequencies than it would be the mids and the highs, because that gives a bit of a musicality and a warmth to the sound. Sure. And this is all subjective, but it's studies that have been done over the years, and so it's in this this chart here at 63 hertz. Um, we're wanting it to be about 132% of the value that it was at 1K. Um, and at 125, it's around 130. And then at 250, it's at around 120. So you want to slightly slope up sure. um, rather than, than come down. And that is the reason that these orchestra halls use materials like concrete and granite and like uh, limestone or just things that are very hard Mm -hmm. and rigid because you won't see um, drywall in there. Any surface that needed to be drywall is usually plaster instead because plaster doesn't flex like drywall does. And so that's in order to get this base ratio where we want it to be to make it it, uh, a lot more uh, uh, musical in there. So the fact that this is so specific, um, do you see it very often where people may just go the artificial route where they're controlling reverb and delay times through their console opposed to naturally within the room? Yeah, that happens a lot, especially when you have a wide array of applications for one room and you're wanting to have it sound good for all of those things. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's where... uh, 
you know, treating the room to be more on the dry side and, and be a little more dead sounding uh, can be nice because then if you, if you are miking everything, that's mm-hmm. the key is that you have to yep. be able to mic, mic everything. But if you're doing that, um, then you can add reverb artificially. And, sure. and I would say that that's a lot of times a lot cheaper than uh, trying to do it with adaptive acoustics because yep. there's a lot of things you can do with curtain systems or even uh, having like a reverb chamber where there's louvers that will open and close and allow that sound to, to um, rever- reverberate in that space. Like mm-hmm. here in Indianapolis, we've got Clues Hall on Butler University's campus. Yep. They have those reverb chambers in there that they can open or close depending on what they're doing. Sure. But that just, it gets pricey, yeah. you know? And so that's that's a good question though. Um, yeah, the, so if we look at uh, after base ratio, we just kind of look at the, the Sabine mesh method. We're going to talk about a few of the equations that we use when we're looking at reverb time. Um, the Sabine method uh, was the first one, and, mm-hmm. and uh, Wallace Sabine uh, was kind of considered the grandfather of architectural acoustics, and he did a lot of uh, studies at Harvard on, on acoustics and just got really curious about why certain rooms sounded better than others and, mm-hmm. and uh, it really started digging into that and then started doing research at Riverbank Labs uh, in, in uh, just outside of Chicago. And that, that picture that's on the screen right now is him in the reverb chamber at Riverbank <laughs> and he's just got his head sticking out of this box because he didn't want his body to add absorption to the room. And uh, that's how he kind of came up with this reverb time uh, um, equation that we use all the time. Like we still use it today and it was done (laughs) that uh, um, kind of barbaric. It just like (laughs) in a a room, uh, he's holding inside of that box a a controller that would controls that uh, pipe organ Mm -hmm. and he can play notes and he has a stopwatch and he clicks it when he stop, can hear it, and then he it stops the sound, and then clicks it again when, it's, uh, uh, when it died out. And that's how we get the saving equation, which is pretty wild. Yeah. That something <laughs> that is that long ago, and all the equipment that we have today, uh, it's still something that's accurate enough for us acousticians to use. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the the Sabin uh, is a unit of absorption that was also named after Sabin, uh, and it was part of this method that he that he came up with. Um, but if we look at the equation, and I won't get too far into the weeds with this, but uh, <laughs> equations are fun. Uh, I'm an engineer by degree, and and uh, uh, I like digging into these things. So I'll show a few equations here. The Sabin equation is uh, the T60, which would be the reverb time. Sometimes it's written as T60 or RT60. Yeah is equal to 0.049 multiplied by the volume divided by the total area of absorption in the room, okay? And that 0.049 is just a constant that he came up with in, in figuring out all of this and doing his, his uh, uh, um, method in, in determining this equation. That's just the constant that in the equation. And then we have uh, volume, which is something you can figure out mm-hmm. in, in a room. And then the total area of absorption is actually every surface in the room multiplied by its absorption coefficient. Mm-hmm. It, the total surface area multiplied by its absorption coefficient, add all those together, and that becomes the uh, surface area of, of, of absorption. 
And it's a pretty simple equation, really. It's yeah. like just got a few things um, that, that you have to figure out, and you could figure out the reverb time from that. Sure. Um, the one thing, it does assume a diffuse sound field and that sound hits surfaces one after another as it travels around mm -hmm. the room, which is not exactly how it, it happens in real life. You sure. know, it's like there's a, there's other things uh, that, that, that come into play. Um, but it's most accurate with rooms with uh, low absorption. So things that are like really highly reflective, like rooms that you walk in and there's a two, three second reverb time. The saving mm -hmm. equation is really accurate with that. Cool. And it's it's amazing too, like when we're simulating rooms with the saving equation and then we go out and do measurements mm -hmm. of it, it lines up most of the time. If it if it's a, a, a room that the saving equation works well in, mm -hmm. uh, then that it's pretty spot on. It's, it's yeah. pretty, pretty amazing how it still works. Um, one thing that to note here is too is that since the absorption coefficients are frequency dependent because everything absorbs a little bit differently depending mm -hmm. on the frequency, uh, the equation is also frequency dependent where you have to figure out um, uh, use this equation at each frequency. So you might have an RT60 at 500 hertz using all the absorption coefficients of that material at 500 hertz, but then you gotta do it again for 1,000 and again for 2,000. Right. Luckily, there's a lot of great calculators and simulation programs that you can use to do this really quickly, mm -hmm. um, but it, you could also just figure it out by using this equation uh, every single time. So were the absorption coefficients, was that around when Sabine was first coming up with this, or did that come later on? Well, that was him him developing that at the that, same yeah. time. That's what happened at Riverbank, you know, like where they would um, use that reverb time chamber. They put 72 square feet of absorption inside the room, mm -hmm. measure it with and without that material in the space, and figure out these absorption coefficients. So he was doing all that stuff him. in real time, you know, wow. like it's, it's pretty amazing. Um, so yeah, and it, so with that, we want to do this when it's it's mostly reflective surfaces, so mm -hmm. that the average absorption coefficients uh, are less than 0.2. Uh, typically, is what you want to use this equation for. Mm -hmm. And uh, like I said, for the most part, it's still accurate today, which is awesome. Yeah. Now there has been some, uh, you know. Uh, advances in, in science and, and different people kind of taking a, a look at this equation and seeing if there's ways that they can improve it. Sure. Uh, one of the things that uh, um, came out of this is the Norris-Iring equation. And we don't honestly don't use this equation all that often because mm -hmm. it is for rooms that are heavily absorptive. Sure. Okay. And most of the time when someone calls us, it's because there's a <laughs> reverb problem uh, rather than there, it, the room being too dead. Although we're working on one right now where uh, the room is just too dead for the application because mm -hmm. it's good for speech, but they want to have a, a choir and an organ in the space. And yep. so they want us to liven it up. So we will use the Irene equation most likely for that one. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, most of the time, we don't use this just because by nature, people call us when echo is an issue. Right. Um, but it is just a, a uh, derived from the Sabine equation. And the difference with this one is, is that um, uh, you, you do have to use absorption coefficients that are less than one. You'll notice on the bottom of this, this equation here, which is T60 equals 0.049V. We, we recognize that from the saving mm -hmm. equation. Um, uh, and you divide that whole thing by the total surface area in square feet. That's the ST value. Um, and then you take the natural log of one minus the absorption coefficients. Uh, and that absorption coefficient there is the total area of absorption divided by the total square footage of the wall surfaces and, and ceiling surfaces and floor. Um, 
And the reason we have to use a absorption coefficient below one is because you can't take a natural log of a negative number. Right. And so if you put in a, a, a number there where it was greater than one, then you would end up uh, breaking the equation and it wouldn't work anymore. So, sure. um, But the, the difference with this one is it assumes all those surfaces are impacted simultaneously uh, rather than one after another. Sure. Um, and also each reflection being diminished by the average absorption coefficient. And... Uh, I will say that this one, it, it, like I said, we don't use it as much as we, we do other equations, and uh, so we don't have as much experience using it. But when it when it warrants itself, it is still very accurate yeah. and, and something that, that is helpful uh, in those, those uh, extreme cases. Sure. All right, this next one, it gets a little more complicated, but honestly, it's... it's uh, um, it's derived from the Irene equation, except it's uh, called Fitzroy equation. Yep. And what this one does is actually puts emphasis on the dis distribution of the absorption surfaces. Okay, One of the faults of the Sabine equation is that um, it doesn't matter which surface you put the absorption in uh, or on, uh, you're going to get the same value back. Sure. So that would assume that uh, if you put 100% of, of one wall covered with absorption treatment, that that room would sound the same as if you divided that up evenly on all four surfaces of the walls. And that's just not the case. Like the room is going to sound different. Um, so the Fitzroy uh, equation will, um, um, you know, it puts emphasis on that distribution of the absorption. So if you uh, do a simulation using the Fitzroy equation, and you uh, don't divide your absorption out evenly, you're going to get a different number if you, than if you do. Sure. And so it's actually very similar to the uh, um, Irene equation. You know, you see that uh, you've got the same, pretty much the same equation multiple times. And you'll, you'll notice you'll have the SX, S, SY, and SZ uh, portion of this equation. That's the north-south walls, east-west walls, and floor and ceiling, uh, the X, Y, and Z dimensions. And uh, essentially, the SX is going to be the total surface area of various planes in the room, divided by ST, which is the total surface area of square feet of all the surfaces in the room. And then you multiply it out like, like you did before, except uh, Fitzroy equation where it's really, really helpful is if you're dealing with a room where the absorption is not evenly distributed uh, around the room. Like, let's say there's more absorption on the ceiling or the floor of the room. Mm -hmm. Uh, a good example is, let's say you have a drop tile ceiling, which is fairly absorptive, mm -hmm. and then carpeted floor, but then concrete block on all the walls. Uh, that's where the Fitzroy equation really helps because all of that absorption is kind of skewed on the z-axis, the yep. floor and ceiling, and that's going to be a lot different than what the Sabine equation is going to come out to be. And a lot of it is a little bit of experimentation and like working with reverb time uh, uh, simulations and calculations and testing data, uh, often we know, like I can just look at a room and say, man, uh, this this one's definitely going to be Fitzroy. And mm -hmm. then we do testing. And yes, the slope of that, that reverb time uh, graph is going to uh, match Fitzroy better than Sabine. Uh, sure. And so you just kind of have to play around with it a little bit. Um, but the Fitzroy equation, I think I think we actually use it probably just as much as we do Sabine because mm -hmm. there's a lot of rooms out there where the absorption is skewed and, and all on one surface. Or anytime you have a, a, a bunch of different types of surface materials in a room, that's mm -hmm. when Fitzroy end up working out really nicely. Sure. 
All right, so we have to kind of determine like when we should use these uh, um, equations because if you use the Sabine equation or the Irene equation in a room where Fitzroy should have been used, you're not going to get accurate numbers, you right. know, and, and, and you're going to think that the room is is uh, got a different reverb time than it actually does. So Sabine equation, again, to remind you, it's... it's uh, uh, highly reverberant spaces, a lot of reflective surfaces, very little absorptions present, and the absorption is uh, uh, um, evenly distributed. Mm -hmm. So it's not just on one surface over another. That's when the Sabian equation can be used. The Irene equation is for really dead rooms, and that it, most of them, uh, most of the surfaces have uh, pretty absorptive qualities. Mm -hmm. So it might be carpeted floor, drop tile ceiling, and then drywall walls with a bunch of acoustical panels on it. Like sure. that would be a, an Irene equation application. And then Fitzroy uh, would be where it's just a, a, a variance of a lot of different materials in the room, and uh, it's not evenly distributed. Sure. So I'm going to quiz you. Let's do it. <laughs> All right, we're going to quiz you. All right, so here's an example. Uh, we got concrete walls, a drop tile ceiling, and a tile floor. Which equation do you think we'd use there? It would be Fitzroy. You're right. You pass. You pass, Ryan. All right. So that the reason for that is is that that drop tile ceiling in these churches, a lot of times that that ceiling uh, might be eight thousand, ten thousand square feet of, of absorption in the room, but it's only on the ceiling, and uh, it it skews things to where if you have a situation like that and you use saving, you won't get the right numbers. So sure. You think you can go for number two? Let's do it. All right. <laughs> number two, we've got uh, the walls are drywall, the ceiling is steel, and the floor is hardwood. So it'd be saving. Okay, so you're correct again, two for two. Uh, so Sabine, the reason for that is is that it's all you know reflective yep. surfaces and and uh, um, not a lot of absorption present. So, all right, this is kind of easy though. Is to go for the third one. What if only I what left. if I mix it up though and I do Sabine and Fitzroy again? That could happen. You never know. Let's see. All right, so <laughs> the walls are drywall with acoustical panels. Ceiling is drop tile, and the floor is carpet. That'd be I-ring. Yes, right. You got it. <laughs> I wanted to have an example for each of them in there. But, uh, yeah, the reason for that is is that it's a pretty dead-sounding room. Yeah. Like, it's uh, um, mostly absorptive materials, and, and uh, so I-ring would be the way to go. All right. You pass. Good job, Ryan. <laughs> Get to keep my job. You get to keep your job. <laughs> uh, all right. So... The next thing we want to talk about, too, when it comes to reverb time is that um, by lowering the reverb time, like doing things to lower the reverb time in your room and make it better for speech applications or uh, like a live band or something like that, what it can sometimes do is make flutter echo more apparent in your space sure. um, if you don't put the treatment in the correct areas. Um, because before, the reverb time might have been masking this flutter echo that's happening. But once it's controlled, then you can start to pick out flutter echo. And flutter echo is, is simply, uh, we've all kind of heard it if you clap your hands in a room and you hear like what sounds like a ping pong ball bouncing back and forth. Like that's when you have parallel surfaces that are untreated. And what you're hearing is the delay of the sound hitting that wall, hitting the next wall, hitting the next wall. And you're hearing the delay as it goes past your ears. Mm -hmm. And uh, the thing is, is that parallel surfaces are uh, very common for flutter echo. But there's some other uh, situations where you can get flutter echo when it's not just two parallel surfaces together. Um, and we actually experienced this at a, a church in Florida. Uh, we did some on-site testing last month. And there was a, a situation where it wasn't parallel walls, but it still was causing this really extreme flutter echo that needed to get taken care of. Um, so I'm showing a... a, a diagram here that has a lot of different uh, scenarios where flutter echo can be a problem. So 
two parallel surfaces. The most common one, we build a lot of rectangular boxes, uh, yep. and uh, that, that is something where you're, you're going to get flutter echo between those. But you can also get it as a curved concave uh, surface mm-hmm. opposite a flat surface, okay? Because that concave surface is going to focus the energy to the center point, and then it can bounce back and then focus again, bounce back, focus again, and that can create a flutter uh, type of echo. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a flat surface opposite a like a peaked ceiling or a peaked wall uh, where you have, uh, it's similar to the concave analogy, but it's just uh, straight lines rather than a, a complete curve. You also have an angled uh, semi-concave surfaces, uh, which like let's say the the ceiling is sloped and it slopes all the way up to the back wall. Uh, You can get flutter echo just from this repeating pattern that happens here. Uh, Also double angled concave surfaces. So sometimes people will angle their sidewalls, but they'll angle them the same all the way down. And then that can create the flutter echo just like it would have been if it was parallel. Sure. Um, Nested circular surfaces, which you don't come into, uh, uh, this doesn't come into play too often in in rooms that we do, but you can hear it sometimes in hallway surfaces. Like if if the hallway is curved and both of the walls are curved together, you can hear the flutter between them. And then opposing corners, which uh, that was actually the the church in in uh, Florida. That was the mm-hmm. issue: was two opposing corners that were were bouncing the, the sound back and forth like that. Huh. So all these things can become way more apparent if the reverb time gets low uh, lowered, mm-hmm. uh, because then your your brain can just now process that a little bit better. Sure, it, it sticks out. Uh, one thing to talk about with reverb time is that uh, sometimes you you may not be wanting to uh, lower the reverb time, but you want to control these harsh reflections and flutter echo, and you can do that with diffusion in larger rooms. And uh, it's basically you're just taking out these harsh reflections and the echo without significantly impacting the RT60. Um, and typically the diffusion is it's nice to put it in in uh, places where it's within the first like 20 to 35 milliseconds or so from the direct sound. Um, arriving at your ears. And the reason is is that these lateral reflections coming off the side of these these auditoriums and churches and performance halls, mm-hmm. it's actually kind of helpful for the audience to be able to get the reinforced sound from the from the the speaker system. And if you overabsorb that, then a few things can happen. Like one is uh, if it's a church environment and you want people to sing along with uh, you know the band, the praise band, or what have you. Um, People tend to tend to like pipe down a little bit if they yep. feel like they're in a really controlled, dry environment because they think that everybody else can hear them. Yep. You know, it's like like when we sing in the shower. You know, it's like it's something that we we feel like we're the best singer in the world if we're singing in the shower because we have all this reverb and echo. Yeah. And then you step out and you like, wow, I, I'm missing a few notes here and there. You <laughs> <Yep>. know, so <laughs> it's something like where if you overabsorb sidewall reflections, people don't seem to participate as much. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing is is that 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 reflection off of that wall uh, helps reinforce the direct sound and can help speech intelligibility, especially for people in the back of the auditorium. Sure. So overabsorbing those sidewall reflections aren't great. Mm-hmm. And it's something where um, uh, if we can diffuse it using diffusers or like a hybrid product that's like perforated facing on top of the absorption mm-hmm. where it doesn't absorb as much high frequency energy and uh, and absorbs more low frequency energy, it can bring balance back to the room and help um, on all fronts when it comes to speech intelligibility and, and musical quality. Sure. Um, and I would say that that a lot of times adding diffusion too around like musicians and and people in the choir it helps them hear each other better and it can just be a a better environment uh, without adjusting that reverb time too much so in some of these cases especially in these um 
like whether it be an auditorium or a sanctuary, like sometimes we have uh, walls that we can't necessarily touch. Mm -hmm. Um, So do you want to talk about how we kind of overcome that sometimes? Man, that that one's tough because, yeah, there are uh, some cases where, yeah, this this wall's off limits Mm because there's a mural painted on it or, or, uh, um, yeah, we just can't do anything on this surface. Like uh, in some churches, there'll be... uh, glass on the back wall so the people from the lobby can see in at mm-hmm. the same time and and if the glass or that mural let's say creates a big enough problem that we have to address it sometimes we'll do that with like acoustical curtains mm-hmm. like something that they could still have the functionality of of those things but uh, if it's that bad and we need to knock it out then we can do something not permanent sure. and, and uh, not adjusting it too much but yeah, we did a, a church one time where there was this beautiful domed ceiling that was all painted. I mean, it wasn't mm-hmm. like Sistine Chapel uh, level, but it was sure. it was beautiful. It was nice. And they told us at the very beginning, they said, uh, you can do anything you want in here as long as you don't touch the ceiling. Yeah. And I'm like, unfortunately, the ceiling was the problem. You know, yeah. like when we did testing in the room, like it, it, there was, it was a domed ceiling, so that concave surface was focusing yeah. uh, the sound back down. And... I even I remember showing a waterfall plot which shows energy over time mm-hmm. and you could see ridges in the waterfall plot at uh, certain frequencies and when I did the math that wavelength of those frequencies perfectly divided into the radius of curvature of the dome yeah. and that dome was just extending that sound over time and so I could show that in a report we still didn't get the go ahead to be able yeah. to treat the ceiling but at least the expectation was set that like Hey, if we don't treat the ceiling, this problem will still exist. Sure. And uh, the more information you can give clients, the the better on that front. Yep. Uh, next thing we want to look at is uh, the speech transmission index. Uh, so it kind of goes hand in hand with reverb time because it's derived by uh, a lot of different metrics, but one of them being the reverb time of the room. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also looks at the speech level, uh, frequency response. Uh, also, we're doing a background noise level, late arriving reflections and echoes. And so all of that gets derived or, or boiled down to just one number. And it's a number from zero to one. That's the scale. One would be perfectly intelligible, and zero would be like Charlie Brown's teacher, like yep. just be like a garbled <laughs> mess of, of sound. You wouldn't understand anything. And so most rooms, you want to be above a 0.6 for okay. this uh, uh, STI measurement. And uh, I've, I've measured some rooms that be in the 0.2 range, 0.2 to 0.3 range. Wow. Like those are typically like brick walls and a hard floor and a hard ceiling and just a really long reverb time. Um, but you know, some spaces, even without acoustical treatment, can be up there in that 0.6 range. But just to get it to that excellent level, um, you'll see out here on this this uh, chart, we've got uh, zero to 0.3 would be bad. 0.3 to 0.45 is poor. Uh, 0.45 to 0.6 is fair, and then 0.6 to 0.75 is good. If we can get it in this excellent range, which is 0.75 and above, that's what we shoot for, and yeah. so that speech can be heard and understood clearly unless the client's wish is that speech is good but not perfect Mm -hmm. so that the music doesn't suffer you know and then we'll shoot for a little bit lower sti because that uh, we don't want the music uh quality to suffer any Mm -hmm. so with the sti that's obviously very objective but then in especially in churches we also sometimes will do the subjective listening tests yeah yeah that's something i'm doing tomorrow actually uh we're going to test a church tomorrow in ohio and um, what I'll do is I'll get, uh, there's a list of standardized words. Mm-hmm. They're all one-syllable words. They're pretty easy uh, to understand, 
unless you're in a bad acoustical environment. And I will give uh, audience members a multiple choice sheet where they circle which word they think I say through the sound system. Mm -hmm. And uh, typically we're doing uh, 50 words and we do that test three different times. And I make them move to different seats within the the sanctuary uh, so that they're not just sitting in the same spot all the time. Because that's one thing is that sometimes people will say, man, I don't think there's any acoustical issues in this church uh, because they sit every Sunday at the exact same spot, which happens to be right in line with the speakers. And uh, it's good to get people to move, go up in the balcony, do some of those things, uh, because then you can start to really see why there's a problem. Um, But the subjective listening test, it's it's fun because it gets involvement from the the church and and people on the committee. Uh, But then it also tells us a lot of information because certain words, if they miss them, I know which frequency ranges it probably corresponds with. I can look at the testing data because wherever they're sitting in the auditorium, I then swap their ears with a microphone and mm-hmm. do actual testing. And right. so I'll have data plus uh, like objective data plus subjective data from from their test uh, to be able to, to do our work and, and figure out what the problem is. Yeah. All right, so I want to go through a, a quick case study on reverb time here. This is a, a Tabernacle Church in Troy, Ohio, and uh, this was a space where it's a, a fellowship hall mm-hmm. that they uh, originally built. the 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 architect is actually that was the pastor's uh, son, and he did a beautiful job with this space. I mean, it's a really nice looking space, um, but he admitted that. You know, after um, uh, he built it, he didn't realize the acoustical ramifications of some of the decisions he was making. Sure. And I've, I've gone. His name's Mike Twist, and we've we've done a few projects with uh, him after the fact, after this job was finished. And uh, you know, because he understands the importance of acoustics and how much it matters. And uh, they built this beautiful space, but then no one would rent it out because if you were in there with a group of five to ten people, even like you'd start to get a headache just because it was so chaotic and yeah. and the reverb time was long and uh, it, it was harsh reflections coming off the walls. It just wasn't pleasant to be in that space for very sure. long. And so uh, we were brought in. Um, originally, they had contracted with another acoustical consultant who gave them a report, but they just didn't feel super comfortable with it uh, because um, their report said that they needed 2,000 square feet of absorption, and it didn't matter where it got placed. And we, we just talked about how important that is yeah. about where you place uh, acoustical materials within the room. And so um, one, fitting 2,000 square feet of absorption material in this room would be difficult on its own. Okay. Uh, but then to just place it anywhere is is not going to give them the best results. Sure. So we were brought in as a second opinion. And um, this was one of those cases, though, that they told us uh, going into it, like, you are not touching the ceiling. Like, do not touch the ceiling. It's this beautiful wood um, here that I'll, I'll, I'll show you uh, on this screen. It's a wood ceiling. Um and uh, they just loved the look of it. And they had like uh, the, the local contractors that did it were super proud of it as they should be because mm-hmm. it was a really nice looking space. I'll click through a few different photos of, of the room. But notice it's mostly glass, drywall, stone, and, and wood. You know, it's, it's a pretty reflective. So which, which equation would we use? With it being mostly reflective, it will be saving. Nice job. Nice work. You weren't just like zoning out while I was talking, so I appreciate <laughs> that. Um, yeah, so that's a saving equation for something like this. And uh, again, they told us the ceiling couldn't be treated, but notice there's not a lot of drywall surfaces uh, available. There's a, a little bit here and there, but there's a lot of glass and a lot of stone and things like that that, 
that uh, we had to go around. Um, so one of the things that we looked at, this, this chart I'm showing right now, is the uh, reverb time of the room. And there's a few different lines on here, and I'm going to explain what they are. Um, the dotted line is our target reverb time. Like, given its application as a fellowship hall, mostly speech, a little bit of music, we came up with a 1.1 a second reverb time at 500 hertz as our target. Like, that's what we're trying to hit. Is that coming from that initial graph that we showed earlier? Yeah, exactly. Yep. And, and it's a... It's two extremes. It's like speech and a little bit of music. Uh, we're trying to err more on the side of speech sure. in that case. And, and so we do that quite often to where if, if for music it's uh, two seconds that's desired, but for speech it's one second, and they tell us speech is the most important thing to us, we might go 1.2 sure. because it's aired more on the side of speech than it would be for music. Mm-hmm. So dotted line is the target, and the solid black lines that you see are the acceptable limits when we're shooted, shooting for that dotted line. Okay, so as long as we fall somewhere within those two solid black lines, then we're doing pretty good. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then uh, on this graph, the green line uh, would be the uh, computer model that we created of the room uh, without treatment in there okay so that notice how it's a drywalled room with a bunch of windows and things like that Mm -hmm. and so notice the reverb time at 125 hertz is not too bad because those materials absorb and flex at those frequencies and and help to absorb it and in fact when i see a a reverb time graph i can almost tell you what the surface materials are before you tell me Mm -hmm. because i've seen so many of these and some of them have a distinct shape depending on what kind of materials are used sure uh, but this is a, a, a drywalled room with a lot of windows. Low frequency is not a problem. But you get up to 500 hertz, and it's around 2.1 seconds. And then if you go to 1,000 hertz, it ends up being about 2.75 seconds. Yeah. That's chaotic, right? That's I mean, imagine someone saying something to you, and then two and a half seconds later is when it dies out. Well, by then, they're saying something else to you, and it just right. it, it just keeps compounding. So uh, that was the model we created, the green line. The blue line is actually our uh, measurements. I went there, I took a test loudspeaker, and I took measurements inside the room. And notice how well it, it follows the slope of, of that green acoustical model that we yeah. did. Especially at 125, 250, and a 500 hertz, it's almost spot on. Yep. Now at 1,000 and 2,000, it gets a little off. And, and I attribute that to the fact that they had some uh, kind of area rugs and some furniture in there that I don't have actual acoustical data for. Right. And so I'm trying to make my best guess. And, and uh, so I think that's what, what threw those off a little bit. But then it comes back to being uh, overlaid at 4,000 too. Mm-hmm. So when you see a result like this, you get excited because you know that your model is going to accurately represent what's going on in the real world. Right. And that means you can start to add acoustical treatment to your model and trust that it's going to work out that way in the real world. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so uh, here is me making the case for being able to treat the ceiling. Uh, the purple line is if we only treated the walls, okay? Right. And there wasn't a lot of s- surface area, like we said, to be able to treat. And notice how it improves it for sure. I mean, it, it drops it down to one point, you know, uh, 1.8 or so seconds at, at 1,000 hertz compared to, to 2.75. So it almost takes a second off of mm-hmm. the reverb time. But it's still quite a bit above what our target is. Right. And, and uh, so I showed them, like, this is what we can get to if we only treat the walls. And I said, but I have an idea for the ceiling, right? I think that we can treat the ceiling, make it look really nice, mm-hmm. um, but still get the results that we, we uh, would like to get. So the red line is if they would allow me to treat the ceiling as well. Yep. And notice one of the key parts here is that uh, 
one thing you don't want to do is overabsorb the high frequency range. Mm -hmm. So you see that how the red line, it levels off at 1000 hertz to 4000 hertz. It's almost the same reverb time all the way across. Mm -hmm. And some rooms, if you just put too much absorption treatment in the room, um, especially absorption treatment that is skewed to only absorb higher frequencies and not a lot of mids and lows, then the high frequency reverb time will slope way down and sometimes fall below that, that uh, solid black line acceptable limit. And what happens in rooms like that is they start to sound like this, where it's really muffled sounding and, okay. and bass heavy and boomy. Mm -hmm. And we get all of our intelligibility from consonant sounds, right? right? Like the C and T and S. You hear uh, high frequencies uh, when you say those letters. And uh, that's where we get our understanding and the difference between like a word like cat or hat. Mm -hmm. It's like in the high frequencies is where that difference is, is discerned. Um, I have actually a, a good visual example of how important consonant sounds are. Um, and I don't know if you've seen this presentation before. Not this part of it. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I, I put a common saying uh, in there, and I, I took all the consonants out, right? And all that's left are the vowel sounds. Now, vowels are like A, E, I, O, U. You hear that's lower in tone compared to C, T, S, A, E, U. You know, um, And so the low frequencies are represented by the vowels. So if I take all the consonants out, can you read that? Nope. <laughs> okay, I'm going to add the consonants in and take the vowels out. What about now? Um, yeah, and yes, now you can, yeah. and God said, let there be light. Yes, yep. so you can start to read this uh, when the consonant sounds are in. Now, this is just a visual example of it, right. but it works in the real world, too, is that if the consonant sounds are controlled but not over-absorbed, then you can get good speech intelligibility. And uh, just showing this on a graph of why this is important, uh, this graph's a little complicated, but it's uh, really cool uh, when you can see it, it work in real life here, is that this is the relative sound pressure level on the y-axis here, so how loud the sound is. Mm -hmm. And then the x-axis is time in seconds, okay? And so we're going to look at this first slope here, and this is we're just talking about the word back. So we say the word back all the time, uh, but we don't really break it down like this all that often. But with back, um, the BA, the first portion of that, that's more of a, a lower frequency uh, sound, right? The B, back. Sure. Uh, but the CK is high frequency, uh, K, that mm -hmm. sound. Well, if the reverb time of both the low frequencies and the high frequencies are both 0.5 seconds... When you're saying the word back, it takes some time to say the word back, right? right? And so when you say the BA portion of back and it dies out, so this first slope here that's sloping up and it reaches a peak and then it dies out at 0.5 seconds of reverb, then the CK comes in after the fact and then it dies out. And notice how those uh, the, the higher frequency portion is outside of the first portion. That mm -hmm. means that you're actually going to be able to hear it because the low frequencies didn't overcomp uh, like uh, mask it and, and, uh, and disguise it. Sure. But if you change the reverb time at, at, to 1.5 seconds in a room like that, notice how the word back goes up and then this dotted line is how long it takes for it to decay versus the CK, which goes up and then it dies out in 1.5 seconds. And it's suddenly just masked completely from what that low frequency sound was. So that's the importance of making sure that the low end isn't too boomy and bass heavy, and you want things to decay more naturally together uh, because it will create a problem where you can't understand words because of it. Wow. Yeah. Uh, 
Okay, so now we're gonna show a little bit of the acoustical data that we took, because uh, this project being in Troy, Ohio, it's only a couple hour drive from here, and so I had the ability to do testing beforehand and after yep. the acoustical treatment was done. And so uh, this uh, chart here shows the reverb time at uh, 125 hertz up to 4,000 hertz. Uh, and pre-treated measurements, um, you know, it's around one second at 125, 2.12 at 500 uh, hertz, 2.42 at 1,000. Uh, so up over two seconds in, in a, a big uh, chunk of this mid and high frequency range. Uh, the predicted post-treatment results, so this is just based off our computer model of the right. space. It was uh, 0.86 seconds at 125, 0.99 at 500, 1.05 at, at 1,000. So it's taken well over a second of reverb time off in our predictions. Mm -hmm. The cool part was when I went back and did testing at the end, notice how closely these numbers match up. Yeah. You know, it's like uh, instead of 0.99 like I predicted, it was 0.94. Um, it was uh, instead of 1.05 at 1,000 hertz, it's 1.03. That's such a minor uh, change mm -hmm. that I was really excited about how the model uh, was was performing well in the space. Uh, STI measurements, I took that before and after. Before it was a 0.56, uh, and it was considered fair. And mm -hmm. after treatment is a 0.67, which falls into the good range. And so yep. it was much more um, uh, controlled in there. Uh, looking a little bit at some of the, the diagrams that we, we had of the space, um, we had some ceiling clouds that, again, I, I did get my way with treating the ceiling. <laughs> I'll show you how that we, we were able to do that here in a little bit and still make it look good. Uh, but then we, we picked some spots on the walls where it was natural to put some acoustical panels. Mm -hmm. uh, so we were able to put some two-inch thick uh, fabric-covered fiberglass panels in, in some of these areas uh, on the various wall surfaces. But the bulk of it came on the ceiling. Mm -hmm. and, and the way the way that we were able to do that is by uh, doing clouds like this. And, and these clouds uh, are actually made out of the exact same type of wood that they had the ceiling uh, made out of, except they're hung down from the ceiling and they're wood slats instead of solid pieces of wood all the way along. And these wood slats, what they do is they help to absorb certain frequencies better. And from doing testing, I could tell that uh, there are certain frequency ranges that were more problematic than others. Mm -hmm. And there's ways that you can do the math and figure out uh, the spacing and the depth of the slat. Uh, you can adjust those to tune it for different frequencies so it's better at, at absorbing those frequencies. Mm -hmm. And so above these clouds is about, I think it was about six inches thick of a cotton absorption okay. uh, material. And then, uh, so some of the sound can go through the slats and get absorbed by the material above, but then the wood slats actually scatter some of the energy back down to the audience without it being a harsh focused reflection off of that that angled ceiling. Sure. Um, and so it was just ended up being a beautiful result. You see some of the acoustical panels on the walls. Uh, we've got some uh, kind of, uh, we had the acoustical panels custom made to, to match the slope of the ceiling there on the wall. Uh, but these, these ceiling clouds, they actually liked the look of them better when it was finished than it was beforehand, which was, was pretty amazing. Nice. Um, so that really great result. They were very happy, later hired us to do their sanctuary as well, mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and just trying to be real creative with what we're doing with, with the treatment. Um, the last thing I want to talk about, too, is the uh, reverb time simulator that we have on our website. So we talked all about reverb time, but sometimes people don't know what 
a two-second reverb time sound like or mm -hmm. a four-second reverb time sounds like. And so we created this simulator on our website. And uh, if you're uh, watching this on uh, on a device where you can actually scan this QR code with your phone, uh, you, could, you can go straight to uh, the reverb time simulator on our website. Mm -hmm. Or you can find it on the Acoustical Tools uh, uh, menu bar at the very top of our website. But this reverb time simulator allows you to hear speech, a praise band and a choir yep. in a room with and without treatment. And so you can hear uh, the chaotic reverb before and then what it would sound like once it's controlled. And these are real projects that we've done. There's about 10 or 11 examples on mm -hmm. there and you can hear it firsthand, which is was super helpful. Yeah, it is really cool. Yeah, we, yeah. we use it all the time where we just send it to people and, and uh, allow them to, sometimes they'll find a room that's very similar to theirs mm -hmm. and be able to hear uh, how much improvement they could potentially see. Yeah. And that's just it. It really goes back to show just how effective acoustical treatment is when it's placed in the right spots. That's right. So, so, so that's it. That's a lot of information on yeah. reverb time. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, really appreciate you being part of the sound project. And uh, please like and subscribe and share with friends. Uh, it really uh, is, is nice that we're building this community of, of, of people who like to learn about acoustics. And if you have any topics that you uh, would like us to address on future episodes, feel free to email us at info at or you can comment below. And we will see you next Monday.